Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up right to 4 o'clock and it's Tuesday home time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 this evening. Today, recovery of historic memory with Edmund it's not Edmund, it's Sean Healy from the Edmund Rice Centre. The anti-fascist rally last Sunday week and the role of the Victoria Police. I'll be speaking with Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. The 1967 war between Israel and the Arab nations. Kim Bullimore has been researching and will tell us what she's found. And more on plans for deep sea mining in the Pacific near PNG with Natalie Lowry, media spokesperson for the campaign against deep sea mining. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when what a great day for True Blue Aussie, our Independence Day. Goodbye, Mother Country. Welcome, Uncle Sam Country. Although that will change shortly, but we'll come to that. The in in independence reflecting our dependence in. This is the greatest July for ever, ever, because we now have the greatest big supremo ever, ever. The most popular ever, ever. Very good, very, very good. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dumbo, Yankee Dumbo through and through, a real-life nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. But, but due to overwhelming popular support, I am about to sign this presidential decree, very good, that in future, Uncle Sam will be known as Uncle Donald. Good, very, very good. So now the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world is our Uncle Donald. Maybe the Stars and Stripes gods oversaw Hawthorne getting up against Collingwood Sunday so the footy world could hear their theme song at this time. The George M. Cohen Yankee Doodle tune, of course. Nathan Buckley could argue, therefore, it was out of his control. The U.S. of Eagle Gods intervened. While in that area, the Consistency Award of the Week, always a tough one. Former Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses to stress that someone being disloyal to the government is a serious contender, but right up there has to be Uncle Donald Trample the Poor after months denying Russia had interfered in the US of election in support of Donald. This week attacked his predecessor, Barack, for change, 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 for doing nothing about Russia interfering in the election in support of Donald. And as an aside, we can but imagine the shock, the disgust the US of would feel at the thought of someone interfering in someone else's election. So Russia did interfere. That is fake news. Very bad. Very bad. So, so what did Barack Ford do nothing about? Russia interfering. Very bad. Very bad. Uh, so, so Barack Ford failed to do anything about something that didn't happen? It was the biggest do-nothing ever, ever, bad, very bad. 
Tiny's relentless fight against disloyalty led current big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull, speaking of doing nothing, led Malcolm to dismiss Tiny's invaluable advice by declaring he is about getting things done and not talking in slogans, as if Mr. Stop the Boats, Stop the Boats, Abolish the carbon tax, abolish the carbon tax, lower taxes, lower taxes, whatever talk in slogans. Uh, getting things done, Malcolm. Jobs and growth, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. Uh, no slogans, no slogans. Then again, this junk mail landed in my letterbox, thanks to the no junk mail sign disintegrating, with AG hell for our customers telling me how I can save on my power bills by signing up with. With this slogan, keeping warm this winter shouldn't burn a hole in your pocket. Which is true, we agree with AG Hell, for it shouldn't, but thanks to AG Hell 4 and the other super efficient private corporations now running what we used to own, it will. But then we have to concede in this case, there's no inconsistency. Their only raison d'etre is to burn a hole in our pockets. And an item we're sure Uncle Donald would consider good, very good. At long last, the government is taking steps to end the thuggery, the illegality, the exploitation of poor, caring employers in the construction industry, those poor, caring employer pillars of society who erect all those towers, those cranes amid the skyscrapers, build all that progress. And they're big enough to concede, with a little help, from the lazy, avaricious workers who do the, the actual work. But good news. The government is finally sick of all that illegality like evil workers walking off the job just because another evil worker is killed or injured. No respect whatever for the law, crippling their poor caring employer who always regrets killing and injury workers. Uh, caring employers aren't heartless money grabbers. Well, aren't just heartless money grabbers. Finally sick of, the government is passing legislation to make it easier to deregister evil trade unions, with no particular union in mind, of course, lowering the bar with the key clause being if they are no longer serving the interests of their members, showing just how balanced the government is, concerned that workers, particularly building workers, best interests be served. Now, we know they wouldn't use their new powers arbitrarily just because they hate evil unions, because evil unions are evil, and there are plenty of safeguards like big supremo Malcolm himself or the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Macalia Koch, the workers, armed with her free kills the workers' respect for evil unions, or, say, Attorney General George Brandy's brain must decide on behalf of building workers whether their evil union is serving their best interests and unions, workers are in safe hands when Malcolm and Michaelia and George and co can make the big decisions for them. And we know the government wouldn't be introducing this law because it has a not so hidden agenda to wipe the evil construction union out. Good heavens no. And anyway, if the government does decide it's in the best interests of lazy avaricious workers to have the union wiped out, they would be in the safe hands of an administrator like 
say jackboots commission supremo Nigel Hodge kiss the bosses. And if they are wiped out, they've only got themselves to blame for making lots and lots and lots of unreasonable demands like wages or safety or that workers should be in the union or union officials should be allowed to talk to workers. The latter two we all know are illegal and the first two are mostly illegal, showing how the evil union bosses have no respect for the law. But if the government does decide reluctantly and only after forensic study of the facts the union is not acting in the best interests of its members, we'll know that must be correct because they'll just be observing the law. But let's go to the most serious, the most critical, the most pertinent event in the whole world, so important it led the commercial news services last night and the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin this morning. Yes, in the week that was sport, an AFL official bashed an opposition player in a match between West Preston Lakeside and Whittlesea at the weekend. Seriously, we can't think of anything in the whole world more important. For goodness sake, without this in-depth story, they might have to bring us real news in order to fill in the spaces between the ads. Also in the week that was sport, an international football, as in Soccer Federation Ethics Report, FIFA, the international body, and ethics could well be an oxymoron, but the report says True Blue Aussie made improper payments intended to influence votes when we bid for the World Cup, which, as we know, worked a treat for True Blue Aussie got exactly one vote, presumably our own. Money well spent, but we have been assured by then big soccer supremo Frank Lowy than Lowe, who must be a great man because he's right at the top of our filthy richest of the filthy rich, assured there was no risk to his own fortune as he pursued his little hobby. It was all part of the billions we extracted from the public purse. No harm done. And now the new big supremo, Frank's son. Maybe their soccer's version of the North Korean great and beloved brilliant Kim Il family. No one else good enough. Frank's son wants us to fork out trillions more from the public purse to bid for the Women's World Cup. It's money well spent. Well, your money well spent. <laughs> he laughed, displaying not only why he's also filthy rich, over and above being his father's son, which overwhelmingly has something to do with it, but also a razor-sharp wit sense of humour. Because I can guarantee we've got at least one vote locked in. Speaking of razor sharp, I know we've been a bit questioning about poor Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle in the brain department, but we really have to admire his self-awareness. In Rome, no fool there, about a minute and a half, give or take, slight touch of hyperbole, after Parliament rose for the winter getaway from the cold recess, Barnacle turned up in the Northern Hemisphere summer at our expense where, asked to comment on what Tiny had in mind about something or other, announced he couldn't comment on what was on someone else's mind. I have enough trouble with my own. No, said I, that's what he said. And the rest of the interview confirmed his worry. But I thought, good on you, Barnacle, bit of self-awareness. Although I must say, as Barnacle negotiates with all these European trade ministers and officials, what must they think of us if this bloke's a senior minister. Finally, 
what confidence in the inefficient hand of the public sector, this state public purchase of that unsustainable hardwood super efficient private company because the company threatened to close down because it couldn't get its chainsaws on enough unsustainable. Only question, if they're planning to close down anyway, why pay a cent, let alone hand them billions? Let them close and start your own company, keeping the sustainable bit in mind, public version of a Phoenix company. But as the shareholders rub their hands together excitedly and laugh all the way too, they've certainly discovered all about sustainable. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy, and don't forget tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, City Limits. The Uluru Statement issued at the conclusion of the 2017 National Constituent Convention called for, amongst other issues, a Makarata Commission to supervise a a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about their history. In other words, time to recover historical memory of past conflicts and a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This was brought home forcefully to Sean Cleary, Education Officer for International Programs with the Edmund Rice Centre in Sydney, who travelled to Mile Creek on the anniversary of the June 10, 1838 brutal massacre of 28 Aboriginal men, women and children. Later that year, seven of the men responsible were hanged the first time in history why populations were punished for murder of Aboriginal people, and reinforced his belief in the urgency of recovering historical memory and how truth and reconciliation commissions have contributed to the healing process after wars and occupations in many countries around the world. I asked Sean first when his interest and knowledge of recovery of historical memory was formed. It was an interesting process for me. I was living in El Salvador and I'd been at a conference of Australian volunteers who were working in the Central American region in 97. The conference was held in Guatemala City and so it was just a four-hour bus ride for those of us working in El Salvador. As I was sitting on the bus on the way back to El Salvador, I was listening to local radio uh, with headphones and heard this message which was saying, uh, paid advertisement, if you as a Guatemalan have been affected by the war in Guatemala, by the years of conflict, and you haven't been able to get the truth or or publish the truth of what happened to you, uh, then there is uh, an organisation that's interested in receiving your testimony, and if you're wanting to contribute your testimony, then please contact your local Catholic parish. So that was the content of it. That was the first time I'd heard this term, recovery of historic memory, and that was a program being run on a national level by the Catholic bishops in Guatemala. And as I came to learn about it a bit more, it seemed that it was a response in some ways to the peace process in El Salvador. I'd lived in El Salvador from January of 1990 uh, right through until... Uh, late 1998. I was there for the last two years of the Civil War, then through the UN peace process, the the village I was living in I was placed there by Jesuit Refugee Service to accompany refugees who were returning to El Salvador from refugee camps across the border in Honduras, and they were returning to the conflicted zone, so they'd asked the churches particularly for volunteers to be able to 
offer a human rights presence and witness to, to provide them more protection in the conflict zone. So having lived through the peace process in El Salvador, which uh, the negotiations carried on in the second half of 1991, was signed at the very beginning of 1992, then the implementation of that, the local football field in the village where I live, because the village had become one of the 15 places nationally where the guerrillas concentrated their forces, our football field practically became a landing strip for UN helicopters in the, the well-resourced UN program that oversaw the, the next two or so years of implementation of the peace accords. And one of those elements of the peace accords was the, the Truth Commission. Sometimes I think we think of peace accords as be, just being a single-page document where both sides say they're going to stop firing guns at each other. But in fact, in El Salvador, there, I think there are about 15 different chapters dealing with economic participation, agricultural land reform, human rights, political participation, demobilization of the guerrilla forces, restructuring of the armed forces, purging and revision of human rights records of people in the armed forces, senior officers, and then importantly, the, the Truth Commission for El Salvador. So one of the things that I think that Guatemala, which where it was negotiating its peace process some years later in the, the late 90s, was able to see from El Salvador and learn that uh, human rights organizations in El Salvador were able to say, well, why was the Truth Commission for El Salvador only given six months to be able to operate? And effectively, they are only able to recover information of you know, key cases, not able to get into a, a broad sort of brush, but just kind of look at uh, test cases. Maybe similarly to the, some of the test cases which we may have heard of in regards to the Royal Commission here into institutional child sexual abuse, institutional responses. In El Salvador, where the Truth Commission was able to report on these 15 key cases, it didn't really give the general public who'd been had, had suffered many of the consequences of the human rights abuses of the years of, of war, it didn't really give them a chance to have their, what they'd suffered in the conflict, brought to light and a process through which the perpetrators could, and the truth about what had happened was brought to light and truth as well about who the perpetrators were. So this is what happened in El Salvador and, and I wonder if some of the difficulties of the peace process being the inadequacies of the that process of social reconciliation, not having an adequate truth process. And so I was quite interested, therefore, to hear that in, El Salvador, sorry, that in Guatemala, learning from the deficiencies in El Salvador, the bishops had, said, had decided that there was a need for a major, major process of receiving testimonies, evidence from witnesses and survivors of human rights abuses, and collect that to be able to have it as a, a major database for the country before the official UN Truth Commission process would begin. Can I take you back to El Salvador for a moment before you continue on Guatemala? Sure. Why do you believe that they didn't follow that truth and reconciliation part of it? That, I think, is, is also really interesting as far as that the, the peace accords in El Salvador were very much a bilateral process. It was a negotiated peace accords between the government and the guerrillas. And civil society effectively had no participation in that process. So within that, you could say that the leaders of the guerrillas would have been quite concerned about what implications there would have been for them in regards to 
a, a more profound or a wider truth commission process for El Salvador. And part of what leads me to think that was very much the process was that I was able to attend the signing of the peace accords in Guatemala, uh, and I can't remember whether that was 97 when that happened. I'm not sure. I think it might have been 98, 97 or 98. But uh, when the peace accords were signed there, I went with a, a friend from El Salvador, travelled up to Guatemala for the peace signing, the signing ceremony, and standing in the central plaza in Guatemala City, I was quite surprised that the Secretary General of the United Nations, in his short speech, five times he mentioned this organization called the Assembly of Civil Society as being participants in the peace accords. So there were peace accords not just between the government and the guerrillas in Guatemala, but the civil society should have a, a participation as well. And in fact, that didn't really happen too much in Guatemala, which might have been part of the failure. And part of that, I think the reason for that is for the under-resourcing of the assembly of civil society to be able to carry out its role. So there was an understanding from the United Nations, at least from the Office of the Secretary General, of the need for these processes to not just be between the two belligerent parts, but for civil society to have its voice heard in there as well. And do you believe that the failure to take the civil society into the peace process you can see the results of that today in both those countries in terms of a not a peaceful country? That may be certainly part of it. I think that that could... It's hard, I think, to talk about the violence in both countries. I think that in, in Guatemala, uh, clearly the impunity continues. I don't think that impunity is con continuing in El Salvador, but that different levels of... Uh, in El Salvador, the, the levels at which the violence got to within society, how widespread it, it, it became. So I'm not sure in either place how attributable that is. I think that there is a need for better resourcing of uh, that process of historic memory. I don't know whether I'd also, I you know, probably don't know enough about the dynamics of the violence as it exists today. I don't know enough to know the extent to which the lack of uh, civil society participating in the accords was also part of that. Can you talk about some other countries, other countries where they've had similar commissions and how they've fared? It's interesting at the moment, the process I was able to, you know, at the same time in, I think it was 1987, uh, I was able to participate in, I think it was the second ever seminar in which organizations, human rights organizations in Colombia were looking at what were they doing to bring together their cooperation to combine the information into accessible databases for international groups. How could they also then carry on from the process of not just collecting the information, but what would be the process of feeding that information back into the public sphere so that they were also looking at this Truth Commission or Recovery of Hysteric Memory process and then how do they socialise that information. So I was at the, the second ever weekend seminar held for the Never Again process in Colombia, the Nunca Mas, uh, which was something which uh, a term or a phrase, Never Again, was something which I think had come from the first from the Secret War in Argentina, in Uruguay as well. Other, I think, in Paraguay and Brazil had also had nunca mas processes, social processes of recovering, working out exactly the truth of what had happened, 
uh, as far as possible and then feeding that information back through society. So with the developing interest in those countries and those processes and, and being a fairly first-hand witness to some of that in Latin America, where I've had opportunities to visit other places that, uh, where you see this process, it, it's something that I think poses really important questions to us in Australia that in our, you know, for the last 20 years or so, we've been talking about in a serious way about what does reconciliation mean for us as Australians between Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. And I really wonder how much we've progressed, how much we've taken on board a, a process of recovery of historic memory. And that came, I guess, through the, the history wars during uh, John Howard's time, came to the fore a bit, but I'm not sure that we've really embarked on it a bit. And, and i give you an example that uh, when I was 14 and uh, my father was working in the UK for six months, and that gave us an opportunity to travel, and visiting Germany, we went to the Dachau concentration camp not far from Munich. I think that sort of had a marked impact on me as a 14-year-old, but then later on thinking about it, it's strongly conscious that that is a way in which the German people maintain the historic memory and recover the historic memory of a darker part of their history and the way in which that then impacts on their self-knowledge about who they are and how they've got to be who they are today. And whereas we can see that in Germany for all Germans and, you know, it's government, well-supported government effort to make, make sure that that uh, is in people's consciousness, you know, I don't know that we can see that uh, here in Australia in our reconciliation process. Other countries where I've followed on from this interest and often it seems a strange place to, uh, to spend holidays at times, but it, my interest in this has meant uh, wanting to when opportunities have arised to visit memorial sites of massacres. So in, in visiting Cambodia, they have maintained the high school in Phnom Penh, the S2 intelligence uh, centre, which was turned into a torture and interrogation centre and, and a murder centre, so as well as the killing fields outside of the city, which is also a memorial site. That S2 high school in Phnom Penh is in, important in that process. Similarly, visiting, uh, again, off the beaten track, but on a visit to Vietnam, my partner and I sort of travelled two-hour extra trip right off the, the tourist trail to visit the My Lai massacre site from where the, uh, one of the more infamous U.S. atrocities committed during the Vietnam War, and that is maintained for the, the Vietnamese people as a memorial of, of part of that process. What's different in, I think, a lot of these circumstances is who's writing the history and to what extent the conflict has ended up in a clear victor in the conflict. So we compare then the truth and reconciliation process of South Africa where the black African majority uh, were eventually able to achieve power so therefore the truth and reconciliation commission that was conducted in South Africa had a different a different dynamic to it because it was in the hands, I guess, of uh, people who were reflecting back on apartheid, but uh, after a transition of power. Again, visiting Rwanda as well and the memorial sites there, it's, it's also interesting Then maybe there are even some parallels between Rwanda and, and Japan where it's 
perhaps a fairly one-sided perspective of of things as far as the, the genocide in Rwanda. I think it's very clear that the, the genocide happened, but to what extent is that then being used to shut down discussions of ethnicity in Rwanda? You have the, uh, the short-statured forest people of Rwanda who now, because it's illegal in, in Rwandan law to use the terms for different ethnic groups. So these Batwa people, who previously would, we would have referred to as pygmies, who were forest tribes in Rwanda, that they're no longer allowed to have a national association of Batwa because that would be identifying a, uh, an ethnicity. Uh, and whereas I think you know, some of the intention of that law is to move past the Hutu-Tutsi divide. I think that the, uh, the government of Rwanda is quite repressive in a lot of its things and, and can even use historic memory to, uh, as a justification for some of its repression. It isn't this the, the point that the victors have the power to write the history? Yes, and maybe that's where it comes back to civil society's participation in these processes that in, in visiting Japan, we were hosted by the Japanese Catholic bishops and they were able to, uh, I guess there were three significant sites that, that I was able to visit there. One was the Japanese bishops had put some funding with other organizations and women's organizations internationally particularly for a woman, uh, a women's war museum in Tokyo. And it's a, a tiny little three, four room museum, but it's an important I think, symbol or, or place of resistance standing against the dominant historic memory. So in, in Tokyo as well, if you go to the Bushido Temple and the museum that's associated, located next door to that, you can actually see the steam locomotive engine from the Burma Railway. And of course, the Burma Railway, where so many Australian POWs died from the awful conditions and from murders committed by the Japanese captors, and so many more thousands of of local uh, Malay and Thai people were also murdered uh, in the construction of the Burma Railway. But in the temple in, in Tokyo, museum next to the temple, they have the, one of the original steam locomotives, and the reason it's kept there is to, the, we have the benefit of an interpreter reading the, the signs, which are some of them are bilingual, uh, in the museums, but often they're saying a different thing in Japanese to what they're saying in English. So we had a historian who was able to then give us that insight. And so the, in Japanese, the sign on the locomotive says it celebrates the great engineering feat of the Burma Railway. And there's other places within there in which the clear ethnicity preferences are shown as well, that where a, a Korean-Japanese military person is been involved in a, a key military action, their heroic actions are played down, whereas someone who is a more pure-blood Japanese hero are conducting exactly the same action, that their lineage and their heroic action is, is strongly emphasized. Whereas across town in this tiny NGO-funded and, and church-funded women's museum of war, it's actually details some of the atrocities committed by the Japanese imperial forces. You're tuned to 3CR, and this is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Sean Cleary, the Education Officer for International Programs with the Edmund Rice Centre in Sydney. And was it in the former that you're talking about there that 
Japanese school children visiting are taught that it was Europe's fault that there was a World War Two. That was in Hiroshima, and I found that quite intriguing. That it seems like a place of you know, as old school children in Australia would didn't I don't know it's grade six or whatever it is make their pilgrimage almost to Canberra to go and visit the Parliament and visit probably the War Memorial and other things around Canberra. It seemed that Japan has a pilgrimage that all school children would go once or twice in I don't know once in primary school and once in secondary school, just judging by the particular groups that were wandering around the day that I was there. Visit Hiroshima as the, the site of the atomic bomb, but then it's also the interpretive museum associated with that and what it's telling them about the causes of World War II conflict. So that in the same way as the Women's Museum in Tokyo is trying to look at the sexual slavery imposed and rape committed against women in a systemic way by the Japanese Imperial Army, in all the countries it's occupied, and that a consciousness of that should then be impacting on Japanese constructions of masculinity and, and gender relations in Japan in modern day. I think the same sorts of questions were going on, you know, I guess we've heard from time to time the struggle about what is written in the school books in Japan, the way in which kids there are educated about their own nation's history and how their own nation got to be where it is today. So some of the things in Hiroshima was talking about the European nations being the ones which were suppressing Asia and so showing Japan to be trying to, as part of the Asian push, to achieve rescue. But I'm sure the Chinese of Nanking, who were so hundreds of thousands murdered by the Japanese army, would not have been felt very rescued. Uh, although, you know, there was a base of truth in the European colonizing effort, the Chinese didn't, and the Koreans did not at all sort of feel like Japan was arriving as a, as a liberator. What did you find in Spain in the Basque country? I guess my knowledge there mainly was, was fairly limited but knowing of Pablo Picasso's painting of Guernica for the 1937 German bombing during the Civil War where the uh, fascist allies called for support from the German allies and therefore uh, I'm not sure how many people were killed there, but Pablo Picasso had a famous painting of it. And so I was uh, you know, interested, therefore, when we, again on holiday, happened to visit this town, but then pleased to discover that there was actually a small museum right in the center of town. And I don't know that many tourists would get to see it, but again, it's one which is their historic memory of remembering that war atrocity committed in 1937 and part of that people sort of defining who they are and their willingness to stand up and, I guess, to pay the price for resisting totalitarian forces. You know, a very well-done museum. It told the story of what had happened. Yeah, it was valuable, I think, for that local community to have that presence there and be able to say who they are out of that experience. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I think, sadly, is, is quite lacking for us here in Australia when we think of our need for post-conflict reconciliation and where's our historic memory and uh, where are the centres that our school kids are visiting which tell the story of the harsh atrocities which we as colonising external or European societies inflicted, imposed upon the, uh, the original custodians here. One of the first countries you spoke about was Colombia. 
30 years ago they were talking about never again. Just this year a vote failed connected to that peace plan because of the role of the media. Maybe not wholly because of the media, Uh but because of the influence of the media on people's perception of what happened during that war. It's interesting that, and there's actually, I I can't remember, it's Uruguay or Paraguay, where in the Nunca Mas process there, they also had a process leading up to a national vote about whether or not a national referendum, whether or not to overturn a law which of law of impunity, a law of of forgive and forget or not forgive and forget, but ensuring the freedom from prosecution of former members of the military. I think it was uh, Paraguay. Some of the comments that came out of that is that the national debate that led up to the referendum was actually achieved as much as a positive result of the referendum would have achieved. The law wasn't annulled and the referendum wasn't successful, but that it did bring in the whole debate leading up to the referendum brought into the social consciousness what had happened and and was quite effective in the recovery of historic memory. Now, in in Colombia, the peace process is going moderately well there. 20 years ago, what I was part of was not so much, was sort of pre-anyone really thinking much about peace process, but it was... I guess an awareness that when peace process would arrive, there would be a need for the recovery of historic memory. And so it was the preparatory work and probably trying to see to what extent that changing people's opinions or socialising the information about who the perpetrators of human rights atrocities are. Because I think that similarly maybe to the control of or the struggle for public understanding that goes on in Japan, and in Japan a lot of it is based around trying to overturn Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution, which is the pacifist provision in the Japanese Constitution. So uh, strongly the, the current Prime Minister of Japan is working with his party and others to reinstate the possibility of Japan being a, a strongly militarist uh, nation. So in Colombia, I'd say that uh, there's the same kind of struggle for people's awareness of what underlies the conflict and who the perpetrators of the the major human rights abuses are. I think that most Colombians, because they're reading their daily newspapers and watching their television stations, they would strongly attribute the abuses of human rights to the guerrilla forces, the FARC, the FARC, and the ELN. Whereas I'm not on top of the, and I don't know until, you know, in sometime in the future when there's a better process we'll be able to see what the clear numbers are, but I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers in, uh, the percentage of responsibility in Colombia are not too much different from what they were in El Salvador. And El Salvador, the Truth Commission, UN Truth Commission there found that the guerrillas were responsible for 10% of the grave violations of human rights. 10% they couldn't attribute anyone to, and 80% of the grave violations of human rights were the responsibility of the armed forces of El Salvador, the government armed forces, or of paramilitary groups associated with the armed forces. That same struggle for social understanding of the conflict and of the human rights abuses that is played out in other nations, I think, is, is playing out still in Colombia. And so I think a lot of the process around the preparation for the 
referendum that was held in uh, beginning of October, 2nd of October last year, was about that same struggle for control of social or the society's understanding of its, the conflict going on there. That referendum, the, the no vote, so um, it was a referendum on the peace accord, sort of do you as a Colombian citizen offer your support to the peace accords, the no vote won, but by the most narrow of margins. So it uh, was 0.20% versus 49.76%. Very close. Part of the reason, or, or those who were campaigning to support it, I think the media there are strongly aligned with a, a status quo understanding of society. And a lot of that comes from the fact that Colombia has one of the highest levels in the world of the murder of not only union leaders and community leaders and human rights workers, but also also journalists. So journalists who are not giving the party line as far as the conservative factions of former President Alvaro Uribe and the armed forces and the armed forces paramilitary strategy, that those people are, have fairly dominant uh, control and, and management of the media and therefore control of a lot of the Colombian people's perceptions of what's going on there. And focusing on Australia, I believe that the, the need for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was brought home forcefully for you by a visit to Mile Creek. That's right, yes. Um, it, it's the third time I've been there. So this is a, it's not even a town really, it's a, a, a memorial site that's and the one that I'm aware of in Australia and I, I need to find out if we have any more as far as ones that have been properly done. And so my you know, heartfelt congratulations to this organisation, the Friends of Mile Creek. This is situated about halfway between Inverell and Moree, close to a town called Warriata. And where we're talking here is uh, northern New South Wales, only probably 50 kilometres from the border with Queensland. 1838, there was a massacre there that was carried out by European settlers who were, of course, part of the colonisation of this land and opening up uh, what for them were new territories. 28 Aboriginal people who uh, were mainly women, children and elderly men were murdered one night by this local band of 12 settlers. One of them was the, uh, the land holder and then 11 of them were convict uh, workers or ex-recently released convict workers that they committed this atrocity at Mile Creek. Now what stands out and why we know so much about this particular massacre compared to all, all other massacres that have happened across the nation is that this is perhaps the one incidence in which the perpetrators were brought to justice and convicted. following year, the Crown Prosecutor for New South Wales Colony through two trials. The first one was not successful, but the second trial, he achieved the conviction of seven of the perpetrators of this massacre. And that's why we have detailed records of what happened. There were Aboriginal survivors of the massacre who wanted to give evidence, but their evidence wasn't acceptable for the courts then. But fortunately, there was one white settler who was prepared to give evidence. And so that was the corroborating as long as with the, as, as well as the forensic evidence, that was the uh, corroborating information necessary to achieve the conviction. So now every year on the June long weekend, on the Sunday morning, a commemoration is held at the site of the massacre. And the memorial has been very well set up 
by the, the local communities, by the local shire councils, and with the work behind it of this organization, Friends of Mile Creek. It's been very well set up as a memorial where you can walk through and, and have a strong sense of what things may have been like for those people on this little hilltop overlooking the, the Mile Creek back in 1838 when this atrocity was, was perpetrated. There were about 300 people there two weeks ago when we went, and they're saying that's the biggest uh, number. There might have been more than that, actually. There were five members of parliament, which was a New South Wales parliament, very pleasing to see as well. It's something I think they say is growing year by year. So that's the third time my partner and I have attended, and something when we're free that weekend, we'd like to sort of do on an ongoing basis and, and take others. So this time there were three others from Brisbane who uh, travelled with us down there for that that weekend from local social justice group because it seems to me that if kids in Phnom Penh or in Tokyo, in, in Genica, in many different parts of the world, in, in Munich, if they have school excursions to be visiting sites which educate on the historic memory of conflicts in their society, then why are we Australian society not having the same? So my sense is that there should be a historic interpretive center in, in every capital city at least, which is telling the story of the, the atrocities which European colonization inflicted upon Aboriginal Australia. That that is an important step that we need to have a recognition of the truth of what's happened and acknowledgement and that that being incorporated in, into our understanding of who we are as Australia today. Just finally, Sean, how did you feel when you read the, the Uluru Statement from the heart? My mind was going three ways at once, I guess, as far as trying to interpret what layers of the politics that have underlie some of this. But then on reflection, I think really encouraged that it's uh, kind of an invitation, opening a door to embark on a journey together. One of the statements that really stuck in my mind that, uh, and I guess it's about, you know, the corruption we've made of the idea of extinguishment that uh, where the statement talks about how could we possible think, possibly think that after 60,000 years of custodianship and close relationship with the land, how could we think that uh, just 200 years of European presence in Australia could extinguish the 60,000 years? So I thought that was a, a beautiful uh, contraposition of two relative uh, dates. And then I was really encouraged by uh, the sense of the need for including Truth Commission type thing for Australia as well. And I'd hope that whatever work can be done on that, in that regard, we can also find effective ways. And that's Sean Healy from the Edmund Rice Centre in Sydney, talking about lots of countries in the world who are looking to the future through the past. Here it is again, 3CR Community Radio, the Concrete Gang. We've got our annual pull-up down at the uh, on July the 10th on the RDO for construction workers down at the Palace Hotel, City Road, South Melbourne at 11am. $20 tickets at the door, which entitles you a great food there. The Palace put on a great food. Also bring some extra, extra lovely, a few extra chickens in your pocket for the raffle tickets. $10 raffle ticket gives you a chance to win a string bean. It's a $5,000 travel voucher and a $500 booze voucher up for grabs and live music from the Jaded Cats. 
Yes, it'll be there will be square to, to uh, South Melbourne, July the 10th on the RDO, 11am, City Road, South Melbourne for the award-winning Concrete Gang. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Nine days ago, on a Sunday morning, the neo-Nazi group True Blue Crew attempted to march from the Carlton Gardens to the city centre under police protection. But their plans were thwarted by a very large and very noisy contingent of opponents to racism and fascism and once again under police escort they returned to the Carlton Gardens. Early today I spoke once again with Debbie Brennan, spokesperson for CAF, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism and I pointed out to her that that wasn't the end of the matter. No, that wasn't the end of the story as far as the events of the day. There's there's a lot more to be said about what you just described, but apparently after they returned to the Carlton Gardens, a few of them, because they were so emboldened by the police protection, apparently they marched through a part of Melbourne to Federation Square. So the events of a week ago Sunday... There's a lot in those events. First of all, we did outnumber them. There were about 250 to 300 of us organized by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism versus up to maybe 100 of them. And the thing is that they only got 100 after a massive effort to regroup a whole bunch of little fascist grouplets, and that's all they could get. In fact, they were a bit pissed off that more didn't turn up on their side. That side of it was typical of every time that we've countered the fascists, outnumbering them, and under normal circumstances, we would have stopped them from marching to Parliament House, that one block to Parliament House. But the thing that was different, as you said, was that the police were there to protect them. And that is not an overstatement. The police openly protected them. They were there in their hundreds. They um, used stop and search. First of all, they made practically all of Melbourne into a stop and search zone, which apparently is the largest ever that's been designated as stop and search. And then they stopped and searched members from our side. And what was unusual about that was they didn't just stop and search then and there. They took people away to stop and search them. Very intimidating. And and also, I do believe, taking people away from eyewitnesses. They herded us, like forcibly made it impossible for us to get near the fascists, allowing the fascists to march to Parliament House, and then when we got to Parliament House, where we were still vastly outnumbering them and out 
noising them, the police used pepper spray on us. They injured some people, not just protesters on our side, but some media as well. So this is showing that two new things are happening right now. The fascists are trying to regroup, and secondly, the police are there to protect them. But I think that we, we need to also keep in mind the most important thing, that we were, number one, we were not intimidated. We still out, we drowned them out, we drowned out their message, and we marched through the streets to state library. We stopped them from moving to state library. But the second thing is that a week ago Sunday, our side had an even more diverse crowd because we had put out an appeal to all of those targets that the fascists are now openly targeting. So it's not exclusively Muslims now. They're coming out in the open that they're anti-LGBTIQ. They're going for immigrants and refugees, African community, the left, women. That was the makeup of the crowd on our side. So we are actually building our side. Basically, if we had about, say, a thousand on our side, we could have stopped them. We could have stopped the police from protecting them, and we could have stopped the fascists from having a chance of setting foot outside those gardens. I just worry about that, though, because I was, I was part of that, and I just missed the pepper spray, and I'm thinking, well, yes. if you've got a thousand people there, how many are they going to pepper spray? The thing is that we need to prepare for continuing to confront the fascists on a bigger scale. And so this, this is where, with the build-up of the united front that CARF is, with the build-up of that united front, we are also building up our, our tactics and strategies. And so this is what is absolutely so important right now because if we are, say, scared off by the possibility of whatever the police will do, then we're in trouble, basically, because it means that we would not be confronting the fascists. We would not continue to succeed in keeping them small and weak, and we only need to look overseas to see what happens if we don't stop them. In London, for example, the day before the events here in Melbourne, 5,000 fascists marched through London. We don't want that. We can't have that. And I, I think that this is also, I'm putting out a special message to all my fellow unionists who are listening right now, that we who are already there as rank-and-file members and delegates every time to stop the fascists, we've got to get our unions involved in this to be there as the disciplined organizations that unions are in our vast numbers. If we could imagine, for example, something as big like the 30,000 unionists who marched on Melbourne against the attacks on unions and penalty rates a couple of weeks ago, then we're in. You know, we are definitely, we are definitely there keeping our streets and defeating the fascists. And for 
fellow unionists out there, I'd actually like to give an email address because Campaign Against Racism and Fascism has a union working group, and we're actually we're going to be meeting on the 18th of July. So it would be great to email the working group, which is uarf at ozemail, O-Z-E-M-A-I-L, dot com, dot A-U. It's telling also the resources of the state that a Labor government will put into place to mm. protect the fascists, because that's what they were doing. They weren't, they weren't protecting us. They were protecting... That's exactly what they were doing. You're right. I mean, when we talk about the police there to protect the fascists as they did, we're talking about state protection. And we put that alongside the anti-face covering laws that will apparently come into effect either the end of this year or sometime next year. And that is criminalizing protest. And that is not aimed at the fascists. That is aimed at our side. So we do have to deal with this. And it, that is a, it's a telling sign because this is, well, I'm afraid it's looking too similar to history. And I think we've got to see these signals, know them for what they are, and therefore then know what to do. And one thing we cannot give up is our right to protest. However we choose to protest, whether we have bandanas on our faces or not, and our capacity to stop the fascists. One other thing I'd like to point to is the treatment of the medics who were helping those who were immobilised and in pain with pepper spray all over their face. Yes, yes. The police treated them badly. And in fact, there was a point at which there were some people who were badly affected by the pepper spray. Even before medics could actually get there, there were, you know, marshals and others who were attending to those people. And the police told our people to disperse or be arrested. So that, that was anybody attending to someone affected by the pepper spray. And, of course, the medics have, well, they've been targeted by pepper spray before. We can remember, you know, July of 2015 when they were badly targeted by police pepper spray too, and I'm talking about the medics. And it's such a random thing because the police have people boxed in totally boxed in as tight Mm -hmm. as you could get and suddenly the arms go up in the air and this yellow spray comes out they've got no idea who they're hitting yes yes that's exactly right because they did kettle us first and as you say there was no room for us to move when they pepper sprayed they didn't pepper spray just once either they also pepper sprayed us a couple of times as we were marching through the city so it was actually an attempt to disperse us from marching while protecting the fascists in marching. And they weren't so, anywhere near that at that time? You mean the fascists were? Yeah, they weren't. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So it was when we were marching, the fascists had already gone back to the, the gardens, escorted by police. We were marching through the streets, and we got pepper sprayed a couple times more.
Okay, so would you like to give your other Facebook page? And I did speak to a couple of people who, before I told them about it, didn't know the the rally was on. Okay, well, yes, it's um, it's really important to be getting on to the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism Facebook page, and all you need to do is on Facebook, just key in Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. It will take you straight to that page, and everything that we're doing, you can you be in touch with. I will also give out a mobile text number. This is uh, CARF's announcement for CARF announcements if people want to keep up to date and that number is 0422-726-843 so you just text to that number that you want to be on CARP's text list so those are two ways to stay in touch with everything that we are doing and come along to our meetings if you want to and definitely unionists please get involved with the union working group so that we can be really pushing from below to get our unions involved. And when and where are the meetings? The the meetings are the second and the fourth Tuesday of the month so the next meeting is going to be 6 p.m. on July 11th at Trades Hall and those who are either going to be on the text list or are watching the Facebook will be able to know exactly where. The same with the union working group meeting, which is going to be at 6.30 on the 18th of July. They can get that information too. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you very much, Jan. And that was Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, and it's coming up to 5 o'clock on 3CR. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Canadian mining company Nautilus Minerals Inc. is set to embark on the unprecedented extraction of metals from the seafloor. The mining project, known as Sawara One project, would extract gold and copper from the floor of the Bismarck Sea in PNG. It is the first of a potentially large number of deep sea mining projects within the wider Pacific region. The focus of deep sea mining is the deposits laid down over thousands of years around underwater hot water springs or hydrothermal vents. Nautilus has secured or is in the process of applying for the exploration rights to 534,000 square kilometres of the seafloor in PNG, Tonga, the Solomon Islands, Fiji and New Zealand. In addition, many other companies are waiting to see how Nautilus fares before taking the plunge themselves. Mining exploration licences now cover over 1 million square kilometres of Pacific seafloor. And work is expected to begin in 2018-19, but as recently as June 
20th, a report stated that the wannabe deep-sea miner is still struggling to convince financiers that the mine is more than a pipe dream. Natalie Lowry is the media coordinator of the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, and I spoke with her recently. Natalie, I've seen a drawing of one of the machines which are to be used for extracting the golden copper from the floor of the Bismarck Sea. It is a monster and obviously would have had to be dismantled to transport. Has it arrived in PNG yet? There's three machines, they're called the Nautilus Production Tools, that arrived in Port Moresby, they're actually on Marakia Island, which is an industrial area. They arrived there about two months ago, two to three months ago, in fact, actually. And it was a surprise for many of us because Nautilus had talked about the machines being taken to Oman and then to be tested there and then suddenly they've turned up in Port Moresby and they're, they're basically proposing that they'll be doing submerged trials off Marakia Island, you know, pretty about 10 kilometres from the city of Port Moresby over the next year and they are saying that they will start full operation at Soara One project in the first quarter of 2019. Where did the machines come from? They were built in Newcastle in the UK. There's three types of machines. One does the sort of, uh, I guess, uh, almost uh, scraping of the seafloor, and then one does the extraction, and the other one um, collects it all, and it has a pipe they call a riser that goes up to the mothership, and that, that basically all the material then gets sucked up to the mothership. The ship itself is in China, so the idea is they do these submerged trials in Papua New Guinea, then those machines go back to China onto the ship, and then the ship will come back in, uh, I guess, 2019, ready for operation at the SOAL one site. Has anyone tested this project to see if it fits in with international law, freedom of the seas, those sorts of things? The thing is, this is the economic exclusive zone of Papua New Guinea. Right. So out of one project, so it doesn't unfortunately fit into that. But there is suggestions around uh, maybe breaking laws around um, uh, shipping passages. Yes. So there is a lawyer associated with, I guess, a kind of Catholic church that is looking into that, and he recently put out a, or, or was in the media about a week ago. So we, we've, that's kind of new for us. So we're looking at what that could mean. Nautilus has responded, you know, with some sort of spin, but not really answering the question. So that's probably a little bit more research for, for us as well to kind of dig into. I wouldn't imagine there'd be much shipping in the areas where they are planning to do this. It's sort of small, fairly small islands all around there. There wouldn't be a major um, shipping lane. I think it's more around sort of the, ex, uh, the whatever that exclusion zone is around Sawada 1. Like what is the... Yeah, I mean, it's stuff that we haven't really thought about, so this is quite a, a new idea. And um, there is uh, shipping through this Mark Sea, but whether it's in that vicinity, um, I'm, I'm unsure. But they're definitely like Rabaul and Easter Britain. There's definitely, you know, um, there's definitely boats that come in through there. It's said that the deep seas are some of the most uncharted ecosystems in the world, or a world like no other. Nevertheless, what are the environmental concerns of a project like this? It's basically the unknown. There's not enough science 
around what these impacts will be or how big these impacts will be. And one of our major concerns is that in the process they're going to be uh, moving a lot of uh, seabed on the floor which will create a sediment sort of plumage or cloud which will have heavy metals and other toxics in it. And the the ocean moves, as we know, and you know the the EIS of Nautilus hasn't considered a lot of oceanographic factors, including upwelling, and so it's very probable that a plumage like this with toxicity will move through uh, the layers of the ocean and through the marine, you know, through the food chain, through the marine food chain, right up. To to impact coastal communities. The, the site is only 25 kilometres from the west coast of New Island province, about 30 kilometres from Duke of York and maybe 50 kilometres from sort of Rabao, East New Britain. So, you know, that's actually not very far away when we're thinking about that sort of toxicity moving in the ocean. So for us, it's the, the lack of adherence to the precautionary principle. Also, that area is also an earthquake zone. So the uncertainty of... If there was an earthquake, and a lot of the time it's earthquake in the, you know, in the ocean, what sort of impact that would have if they're actually operating at the time, whether the riser would split, whether there would be a spillage, all these things are the unknowns, and that's why, you know, so many of us are saying this should not happen. Oceans are under a huge assault already with climate change, pollution, industrial fishing. It's not necessary for us to mine our seabeds. How deep are they planning to go? It's 1,500 metres, so 1.5 kilometres. That's, that's, where, that's that site. So that's one of three different types of deep-sea mining that have been proposed, but this is obviously the first site that's been given a full operating licence. So for people on Papua New Guinea, they see this as an experiment. In fact, one of the investors of Nautilus pretty much stated directly to us that it is an R&D experiment. <laughs> There's no doubt about that there will be risks involved at all stages of this operation. And who granted the full licence? The Papua New Guinean government. Are they part of this project? Have yes. they put money yes. into it? Yes, they've put money into it. And, you know, that process had no consultation or consent from the local communities that are coastal communities that are close to that site who are deeply opposed to this happening in their oceans. These are communities that don't have division between land and ocean. They live and survive with the ocean and have done for thousands of years and for generations and generations. Did it go through Parliament? Yes, but we're talking about a country that has, if anyone's following the elections in Papua mm. New Guinea now, it has, you know, deep-rooted corruption. This is a problem. And for a lot of Papua New Guineans, and I've been there for the last two months, there's people that didn't even know that this operating licence was given. There's people still learning about this project, um, people shocked that the machines are already in Port Moresby and, you know, suddenly realising that it's getting closer and closer to this operation happening. Um, and the feeling on the ground at PNG, wherever you go, is this should not happen. Did you stay in the communities near there the whole time you were in PNG or did you travel? Yes, so I, I started off in Madang and I actually went to Kaka Island and the community in Kaka have been fighting this issue for uh, probably eight years. So Nautilus originally had a site sort of between Kaka and Bagabag Island, which is the other side of the Bismarck Sea to 
where the Solwara One project is. That community came together very strongly and um, opposed it very quickly. And Nautilus sort of decided to go to the other side of Bismarck Sea, where the Solwara One site is, close to the west coast of New Island province province, which is a lot more isolated and, and remote, harder to get to. Uh, the villages along the west coast don't have access to radio or communications or even, even cell phones. So I guess in a sense, Nautilus knew this, these communities along the west coast wouldn't have the information and probably wouldn't be able to mobilise as quickly as they did on Kaka and Bagabag Island. So I went to Kaka because they're still fighting this issue for them, even though it's on the other side of the Bismarck Sea. They know if this starts operating, the, the leaseholds that Nautilus has is all through the Bismarck Sea. So for them, they... There and culturally, they see interconnectivity across the Bismarck Sea and they stand in solidarity with the Duke of York Islanders and the west coast um, villages of New Island province calling for a ban against seabed mining. And so I went to Duke of York Islands, to, to um, Miyoko Island, a very strong community, which, you know, building within the Duke Islands, really opposed to the project. And I also went to Namatanai, where we had the very first seabed forum in Papua New Guinea, which uh, over 100 people came. There was a whole day of talks and speeches, and the outcome was complete ban on seabed mining. There were representatives of the villages up the west coast at that meeting. They've now gone back to their villages to really share that information and then Caritas in in New Island province with some other key leaders in the communities on the west coast will continue to do awareness raising up the west coast, you know, building the campaign to ban seabed mining in Papua New Guinea and the Pacific. How many people in their communities could be affected by this project? I mean, everyone could be affected. These people live and survive off the ocean. There's the traditional fishing grounds, both New York and New Island province, come very close or around the Solwara One project. There's a lot of other sort of cultural significance of some parts of the ocean there that they don't want touched, but also just their daily life of living off the ocean, whether it's, you know, fish or uh, particularly the fish because that's the protein for them. That's their big concern is that if... Their food is contaminated, their, their food that they take from the ocean is contaminated, that's going to have a massive impact on, on their lives and their livelihoods. Now, this is how they've lived for a very long time. Are you talking about thousands of people or hundreds of people? Thousands of people. In fact, they've said that if uh, Nautilus goes ahead with Soada 1 and then Bismarck Sea was opened up, it would actually affect uh, a couple of million people. Talk about the, the role of the Catholic Church in this. Actually, when I was in Papua New Guinea, um, beginning of my trip, so a couple of months ago, myself and our partner group, Bismarck Roma Group, we presented at the Papua New Guinean and Solomon Island Catholic Bishops Conference on seabed mining. They'd already, a couple of the bishops had already show very strong opposition through their pastoral letters in the, in the past uh, six months. And I guess after our presentation, particularly that they were now aware that Nautilus machines are in Port Moresby, there was a very, you know, they've come out with a strong statement and the Cardinal of Papua New Guinea has come out publicly on television and recently travelled to New York to the UN Oceans Conference with other Pacific leaders where they held a big side event basically calling for a ban on seabed mining. So unlike the politicians of PNG, the churches are trusted institutions often doing the work that the government should be doing around education and health. And 
from the experience I had with the Lutheran Church, Uniting Church and Catholic Church, there's a lot of strong church leaders that really stand with the people, their customary ways, their connection to land, their protection of their land and and their oceans. So for the Cardinal and for many of all the bishops now, they are really standing strong in saying that Sawada One can't happen and there has to be a complete ban on seabed mining in Papua New Guinea and across the Pacific. And this also came out of a Fiji conference about two to three months ago where Papua New Guinean community that I work with um, from Kaka, Duke of York, New Island province, were the keynote speakers at a Pacific Regional Conference on seabed. Um, and from that, church leaders across the Pacific also stood up and the Cardinal from PNG was there and said, we need to stop this and call for a ban on seabed mining. So this year has been a very important year, strategic year for the campaign, not just in PNG, um, but Pacific and internationally because there's a lot of international community who are listening and watching what's happening in PNG and the Pacific, particularly in Europe because the EU has been a big driver of um, deep sea mining in the Pacific. So we've got a lot of strong NGOs in Germany and the UK and Belgium that are also really coming out and standing with these local communities and calling for a ban on seabed mining. So you believe that this project in the Bismarck Sea is just the first cab off the rank if they get away with it? We strongly believe that if Nautilus is allowed to start this operation, it will be open slather in the Pacific. There's already 1.2 million square kilometres of uh, Pacific Ocean under leasehold for deep sea mining. So we're deeply concerned. And we know that Nautilus is a, a small company. It has two major investors that are... One is a billionaire from Amman, another one is one of the rich oligarchs of Russia. And the only sort of mining company that's kind of recognised that has a small share in it, a small investment in Nautilus, is Anglo-American. So what we do know is that people are waiting in the wings and watching to see if this happens. And, you know, clearly this is an experiment. They've got, they're testing this technology out. They've never tested it before. But we want to make sure that those machines don't enter the water, even in Port Moresby. And the local landowners around Montague Island are very deeply disturbed that their waters are going to be tested in, that they've never been spoken to or consulted with or anyone seek their consent for that to happen. So from my experience in PNG, there is a massively strong resistance to this operation going ahead and people are willing to take matters in their own hands if they have to. And it's a very strong message I got out of the forum in uh, Namatanai in New Island province and from all the local communities that I you know, had real honour and privilege of working with in my time in Papua New Guinea. What about opposition in Port Morty where the machines are at the moment? Um, that was part of the work I was doing, I guess, was meeting with some key people who are based in Port Moresby to sort of see what their response is. And one of those is the PNG representative for the UNDP, um, Roy Trivedi, who actually came out very strongly with a statement that this shouldn't happen. So I've engaged with him. He's very supportive of the broader campaign and he believes that you know this shouldn't happen. Even to the point that I attended the oil search AGM, which they're involved with the PNG LNG plants, and their Papua New Guinean PR person is from New Island province and he took me aside and actually said, this can't happen. If there's one... <laughs> If there's one project that can't happen in Papua New Guinea, it's Nautilus, the Soata One project. It's going to deeply impact the people of you know, where I come from. So you're, you're talking about people who are even in the mining industry who are saying this is an experiment and this can't happen. So it was very interesting to see the response. All my travels, I never 
met anyone who said, oh, this is a great opportunity, we're going to have benefits, because the reality is there are no benefits. The whole operation takes out takes place in the ocean. There's no opportunities for jobs or businesses for people in New Island Province, Duke, York or East New Britain. So it's literally an operation that goes into the ocean, sucks out all the minerals, takes it back to China for processing. Really the question is, is there a benefit for PNG as a whole? Um, I believe and many of my colleagues believe and obviously clearly a lot of Papua New Guineans believe there is no benefit for Papua New Guinea. And accountability and, mo- and monitoring when it's out in the sea. Well, we know there's a, a sad history of uh, mining disasters in Papua New Guinea on land. So, you know, at least on land you can kind of see the destruction. You know, not all the destruction, but you can see where the mountain's been cut and you can see, you know, the, the waste in the river. But in the ocean, the, Papua New Guinea does not have the capacity to monitor and regulate this whole new type of frontier industry. And there is actually... No country in the world has developed any monitoring or regulation around this industry. So for PNG to be the first place is a, a very unfortunate situation because there's not many good mining stories in Papua New Guinea. And New Island Province is already dealing with the hair um, from Bering Mine. They've already seen the impacts on the ocean. That's a land-based mine. So... You know, this is this is the deep concern for Papua New Guineans. They have a legacy of a mi- mining legacies that are not great, and um, to have an experiment in the Bismarck Sea in their ocean, something that holds a lot of significance socially, economically, culturally, and spiritually for coastal communities, as well as being one of the biggest tuna breeding grounds in the world. So, yeah, it's it's a, a very much a concern and really shouldn't happen. Now you're back in Australia, what's the role of the campaign here? So we will continue working with the churches by providing as much information as possible. We're building a very strong finance campaign, which is targeting investors and really building a message that this is not the sort of uh, industry you want to invest in. It's way too risky, uh, particularly in PNG. The resistance is very strong and it's going to continue to grow. Um, And we'll continue with our communications and advocacy work, you know, which includes obviously focusing and working with a very strong campaign on the ground in PNG and within in the region, within the Pacific, but also our partner groups and colleagues internationally, both in North America and in Europe. New Zealand involved in this as well? Crossover and we um, show solidarity and support with the, the amazing campaign in New Zealand against seabed mining and also in Namibia where they got a moratorium and also in Northern Territory here where they got a moratorium. That mining is different. It is seabed mining and for us we believe that you know our seabed shouldn't be touched full stop. That is more shallow seabed mining. It's a different process. But it will have massive impacts. So we strongly support the community campaign in New Zealand. It's been a really inspirational campaign. They've been fighting this as long as we've been involved around the deep sea mining work. So there's a lot of crossover and a lot of support and we watch and monitor what's going on there a lot. But they have a very strong community campaign um, and very strategic. So there is crossover with certain people, lawyers that we talk to. Yeah, so internationally, you know, we're getting a lot more connected around this sort of mining of our of our seas, whether it's deep sea or whether it's shallow um, seabed mining. What's the contact point for people who want to get involved? You can go to our website, which is a long domain name. It's www.deepseamining, out of our depth, or lowercase one word, 
org, or you can contact me directly on Natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, full stop, Lowry, L-O-W-R-E-Y, at gmail.com. If you want any more information or ways to maybe engage and get involved, um, yeah, please, please contact us. I think you've got all the information there from Natalie Lowry. In the 1968 issue of the American Mercury, John Mitchell Henshaw warned of the danger posed by Zionism and its rule of Washington and the Middle East. He wrote his article shortly after Israel laid claim to the annexed land during the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Quote, The metamorphosis of tiny Israel from a midget to a giant is in the making. The grand design of Judeo-Zionist expansionist doctrine is to seize all the old rich lands from the shores of the Euphrates to the banks of the Nile, unquote. He quoted also the Israeli Defence Minister Moshe Dayan, and this was in 1952. Our task consists of preparing the Israeli army for the new war approaching in order to achieve our ultimate goal, the creation of an Israeli empire. Today we look at the short and long-term consequences of the 1967 Six-Day War from the 5th to the 10th of June, also known as the Third Arab-Israeli War. With me is activist Kim Bullimore. Kim, that's one explanation for the genesis of the war. From your reading, what were the causes of the 1967 war? This year uh, obviously marks the 50th anniversary of Israel's occupation of the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem. And obviously the genesis of that was the 1957 so-called Six-Day War, which began on June 5. I mean, there's a lot of mythology, particularly from the Zionist side, around, you know, the war and why it took place and the necessity of it and all this sort of thing. Obviously, the main claim that's usually put forward by the Israeli state and Zionists and, you know, Zionist apologists for both Israel and the ongoing occupation was that, you know, Israel was facing imminent destruction, that they had all of the Arab armies, you know, from Jordan, Syria and Egypt basically on their doorsteps ganging up on them and that there was this imminent threat of being destroyed by the Arab countries. This of course is just baloney. Uh, if you actually uh, look at the actual history of what happened, there is a, a very different reading to what is the sort of generally advocated position by the Israeli state. And obviously there was tensions in the Middle East from, uh, you know, 1948 from the so-called Israeli War of Independence slash, as we call it, the Nakba for the Palestinians in 48, which obviously had already changed the face of the Middle East and we had seen more than 750,000 Palestinians ethnically cleansed from Palestine pushed into the Arab countries while another 150,000 were internally displaced in what was now the Israeli state. But in the period leading up to 67, you had a number of other skirmishes and various things that happened. You know, there was the Suez Canal crisis. Uh, Israel had carried out a number of raids into Gaza. For example, in 1955, they carried out a, a raid into Gaza, which ended up killing 38 Egyptian soldiers and civilians. In uh, I think it was in 56, Israel also went into the Sinai. And then the big attack that happened that was imminent just before 67 was in 1966, when 
when Israel invaded the West Bank, which was under the control of Jordan at the time. 4,000 soldiers, uh, Israeli soldiers, went into the uh, town of uh, Samu, which is in Hebron, and destroyed 125 homes, clinics, schools, and ended up killing 18 Jordanian soldiers. Supposedly the purpose of the raid into Samu was to stop infiltrations of Palestinian infiltrators coming in. Previously, um, three Israelis had been killed by Palestinian sort of guerrillas and commandos. But since, you know, 1948, there had been an attempt by Palestinians, just ordinary Palestinian refugees, to enter back into the Israeli state, reclaim their homes and their property. Because as we know, in 48, most Palestinians fled their homes thinking that they could return within a few days, a week or a month or something like that. But of course, they were never allowed to do that. So between sort of 1948 and the 50s and 60s, there had been thousands of Palestinian refugees trying to return. These people were labelled to be infiltrators by um, Israel. So there was an attempt to stop them coming back in. So uh, I suppose, you know, when you look at what happened in 67, I mean, the attack on in Hebron by Israel, even the US uh, ambassador to the UN had denounced that attack, saying that the attack on Samu was far outstripped any attack that had ever happened to Israel and, and the destruction and the loss of lives was far in excess of that. At the same time in 66, uh, going on between Israel and Syria, where Israel shot down six Syrian planes, including one over Damascus. So this had caused a lot of tension, and there was also tension in the Golan Heights, where there were Israeli settlements trying to expand in the Golan Heights. And at the time, Syrian troops would be firing on those settlements. And uh, if you read some of the historical accounts of this, usually there was a pretty much a set pattern that whenever Israeli tractors or settlers tried to expand their settlements in the Golan Heights region, that's when they were being forced back by the Syrians. So, of course, these were all the preludes that were happening around the time. Now, also, obviously, we had NASA in Egypt, who was seen as sort of the new defender of the Arab world and things like that. So while all these attacks are happening in regard to Jordanian territory, which the West Bank was at the time, and uh, it was controlled by Jordan. It was that, and Syria, you know, there was this sort of loss of face, I suppose, with NASA, because he actually had a military pact with Syria. So, you know, there, he had to sort of take these steps to say, well, I'm doing something. In 66, 67, he actually moved troops into the Sinai region. He also put what was known as a ban on Israeli shipping, in which was the Straits of Tehran. So these were the immediate sort of catalysts coming up to May 67. But what's interesting is if you read some of the historical accounts of what was going on, it was very clear from both the Israeli side, the American side, as well as the British side, that Israel was not under any imminent threat of destruction. This is a really, really key point. So even with the troops being sent, uh, the Egyptian troops going into the Sinai area, nobody thought that Nasser was going to attack 
Israel, including Israel. Nobody in Israel believed that he was going to attack. The troops were actually in a defensive position rather than an offensive position. Basically, you know, people like Moshe Dayan, who was one of the key military leaders in Israel, is quoted as saying, the nature and scale of our reprisal actions against Syria and Jordan left Nasser with no choice but to defend his image and prestige in his own country and throughout the Arab world, thereby setting in train escalation of the entire region. And so Diane and Iksak Rabin, who was another leader at the time of the Israeli military, while they knew that the troops were there, they didn't see it as there was going to be any imminent threat from them. And the same thing with the US. The US had, you know, various intelligence reports coming in saying that, you know, Egypt was not going to attack Israel at all. Yitzhak Razin, who was the chief of the, I think, the Israeli military at the time, told the Israeli cabinet that the Egyptian troops were in a defensive position rather than offensive, and he believed that Nasser didn't want to go to war. The head of Israel's Mossad um, at the same time said the same thing, that they weren't going to go to war. And Menachem Begin, who was a member of the Israeli government at the time, but later became Prime Minister, he was a part of the Iriga, the uh, Zionist terror group uh, that helped depopulate Deir Yassin and places like that in 1948. He later said that Israel had a choice, that, um, that NASA wasn't threatening to go to war. I'll just read the quote, what he said. He said, Israel had a choice, and he said, the Egyptian army concentrations in the Sinai didn't prove that NASA was about to attack us. And, and this is a quote from him, he says, instead, we must be honest with ourselves, we'd have decided to attack him. So this is sort of the background to the war. And it, what's interesting is, is that at the time, both the British intelligence forces and the American tele- intelligence forces had already calculated that if a war should break out, that Israel would win hands down. You know, there's a lot of mythology. If you look at even some of the recent articles that have written about the 50th anniversary, you know, at the time, the Israeli troops numbered around a quarter of a million, and if you put all the troops together of Arab countries, Egypt, Jordan and Syria, they had about 340,000 troops. Uh, so, you know, around probably 60 to 80,000 more troops than the, uh, the Israelis. But the reality was, was that the Israeli troops were far better trained and they were technologically superior. So this is why um, the CIA actually said, look, they had already calculated that if a war broke out, whether it was started by Israel or by Egypt, that within a week, Israel would win categorically, hands down. And there's actually, you know, a couple of the heads of the CIA who were quite proud to say, well, you know, we basically calculated that Israel's win within a day of it happening. This is a lot of the mythology behind it. Not only... Calculated, but were the the US and the British were they supplying the resources that allowed Israel to conduct this war? I'm not sure of the levels, but you know, in these day and ages, as with today, yes, Israel was getting funding and support from the various Western governments. So I doubt, I don't think it was to the level that you know the level of funding like if you get US funding today for military use in Israel, but it did exist and it was there sort of thing. So, you know, they were quite aware that was going and basically the US knew what was going to happen and basically not gave it a green light per se, but didn't give it a red light either. So, you know, so they knew that this was going to happen. And I mean, what's so significant about the 1967 war is that after 48, 
it is the next thing that changes the face of the Middle East. And it not only changes the face of the Middle East in relation to Israel and Palestine, but to the rest of the Middle East as well. And what's so important is, is that it also, as people like Jewish academic Norman Finkelstein has um, you know, said about it, he says that 67 redefines the Arab-Israeli conflict, not only in the terms of the conflict itself, but also in the terms of the settlement of the conflict, which I think is really, really important to know. So, you know, it changes everything in that respect. I mean, because you have Israel had previously had something like 78% of historic Palestine after 1948. And so there was 22% of Palestine that was under the control of Jordan and Egypt. And now in 67, at the end of the Six-Day War, Israel now has control of that. It's taken control of the West Bank, it's taken control of Gaza, and it's taken control of East Jerusalem. And, I mean, if you look at the immediate impact of what happens, particularly in East Jerusalem, after 67, in June of 67, is important. So there's that very, very famous picture of the Israeli soldiers coming to the Western, what's known as the Western Wall in East Jerusalem. And, you know, this is the first time that supposedly that the Israeli, you know, citizens of the Israeli state have been able to go there. But in that immediate area that was in front of the Western Wall, if you look now, if you go to uh, Israel today and you go to East Jerusalem today, there is this massive, massive open plaza that looks onto the wall. And often, you know, you see people praying there, but often uh, I remember the very first time I was in Palestine uh, and the very first time I walked down into the area of the Western Wall, there was a graduation ceremony there for Israeli soldiers. Basically, when they graduate from their initial training, they go to the Western Wall, and there's a whole heap of ceremonies that happened there. And my very first time at the Western Wall was, was when this uh, were soldiers uh, having a graduation ceremony. In 67, basically the Arab neighbourhood in that area was only like about two metres from the wall. So uh, what was it used to be known as Al Maghrab, the Moroccan quarter of of East Jerusalem. So basically, within uh, days of seizing control of uh, East Jerusalem, Israel bulldozed that whole Arab neighbourhood. So there was about a hundred to two hundred uh, Palestinian homes that were bulldozed. Thousands of Palestinians living in those homes were ethnically cleansed and that area was immediately turned into a plaza area for Israel. And the same thing happened in other areas in the rest of uh, the outskirts of East Jerusalem. There was places like uh, three particular villages, uh, Bet Nubia, Imwas and Yolo, I think it's called, who were ethnically cleansed by Israel and destroyed. Between 8,000 and 12,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from those villages where Nubia was. There is now an Israeli settlement called Mervo Horon. And so, you know, this became the, you saw, you know, thousands of Palestinian refugees created again. I think there was about 300,000 Palestinians who became refugees immediately in the West Bank because of the war and East Jerusalem there was like more thousands of people as well. But also the occupation of the Golan Heights and also the Sinai Peninsula? Yes, that's correct. That's right. So there was this occupation of those sections of uh, Arab territory as well. 
and obviously, uh, you know, eventually the sign-o was given back and there's still dispute over the Golan Heights and that continues today between Syria and the Israeli state. And as we know, the occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza continues. It's been now 50 years and it's had a massive impact on the lives of Palestinians generations, at least two generations of Palestinians, who have known nothing except occupation. I'm speaking with activist Kim Bullimore on the subject, the 1967 war between Israel and the Arabs. So you've got people doubly refugees. A lot of these people would have been refugees from 1948. They've moved to maybe the West Bank and now they're, they're refugees again. Exactly right. We have thousands of refugees created once more in this period in Palestinian terminology is known as the Nakba or the setback, which is different obviously to the Nakba. And so you've already got, as you said, refugees in Arab countries uh, that have been ethnically cleansed, but inside both these territories there were many Palestinian refugees who had been forced out during 48 who were not living in their traditional towns or homes or things like that and once again you know there's the famous pictures of people fleeing across what was known as the Allendry Bridge into Jordan and you know the bridge is actually bombed out and there's people trying to climb across it and things like that so you know this is really significant it, it, and it changes the face of everything and because for, as we already know after 48 Palestinians couldn't come back and the Palestinians who fled in, in 67 also haven't been able to come back and then there's been the whole issue with East Jerusalem. With you know, East Jerusalem in particular is while it occupied the West Bank and Gaza, it literally annexes East Jerusalem to become part of the Israeli state itself, which again makes it extremely difficult because thousands and thousands of Palestinians who are living there. And if you look at the residency rights of Palestinians over the last 50 years, Israel has basically revoked the residency rights of 250,000 Palestinians living in both the occupied West Bank and Gaza and more than 14,000 Palestinian residents living in occupied East Jerusalem. So there is this continued ethnic cleansing that has continued in the last 50 years. It didn't stop in 67. And then a further opening of the door for the so-called settlers... That's correct. So you see, sort of after the end of 67, coming into the early 70s, is that you see the beginning of what was known as the Israeli settlement movement, which starts to move people in. And of course, transferring Israeli settlers, citizens, into the occupied West Bank, Gaza, or any of the territories occupied East Jerusalem in 67 is illegal under international law. Israel is a signatory, just like Australia, to the United Nations UN conventions and moving citizens from an occupying nation into occupied territory is illegal. Under the Geneva Convention, it's illegal to do that. But Israel has done that in violation. They, of course, claim that the territories that they are occupying are disputed territories rather than occupied territories. But internationally, the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, Golan Heights, etc., are all recognised as occupied territories. And the UN, for example, moved Resolution 242, which was the resolution demanding that Israel withdraw from those territories and hand them back. But in the period, if you want to look at a few statistics of what's happened since 67, Israel, in the 50 years that Israel has controlled it, it's 
built more than 125 official settlements on Palestinian land, which is in violation, as I said, of uh, the Geneva Convention and other international laws. In addition to that, there's around 100 or so illegal outposts. This is illegal under Israeli law, but historically we've seen that most of these so-called illegal outposts are then retrospectively made legal by the Israeli state once they get to a certain size and then they become permanent settlements. At the moment, there's around 650,000 illegal settlers living on occupied Palestinian land. There's around 350,000 of them in the West Bank, around 300,000 in East Jerusalem. In the 50 years that Israel has controlled the occupied territories, it's destroyed more than 48,000 Palestinian homes and structures. More than 800,000 Palestinians have been jailed at some stage through the last 50 years under the uh, military laws that uh, Israel uses in the occupied West Bank and other areas. And as we know, and we've talked about before, there is an apartheid state not only inside Israel, but also in the occupied territories where there is one law for Israeli citizens, Israeli settlers, and there is another law for Palestinians living under Israeli military occupation. You know, in that 50 years, more than 800,000 Palestinians have been jailed through the Israeli military law system. And what did this war do for the emergence of Palestinian guerrilla groups? Yeah, well, in, I think it was in 63 that the PLO was originally founded. I could be wrong on that date, but I think it was around... And in the aftermath of 67, around 69 or so, is when Arafat and, and the uh, Fatah sort of came to dominance in the PLO. In some ways, it fuels the Palestinian resistance because what's interesting is you need to even go back first in history about what's happened in the conflict. I mean, before 1948, the last mass Palestinian uprising really was in 1936 to 1939. Like, there have been skirmishes and various riots and various things that had taken place since British occupation in 1917, you know, 1920, 1921 uh, and 29. And then from 36 to 39, there was a anti-colonial uprising by the Palestinians, which was aimed primarily at the British, who were the occupying imperial force at the time, and, of course, against the Zionist settler colonial project. That actual conflict was in two stages. So you had the sort of first stage, which was in 36, most of 36, from April to the end of... uh, April 36 till the end of 1936. And then there was a period of about six months where negotiations, League of Nations at the time, came in and supposedly you were trying to discover what was the cause of the conflict. And then, of course, because nothing changed, again, the uprising began around September 1937 and went to 1939. And during the, particularly in the second half of the uprising, but it happened in the first half too, but it was more noticeable in the second half of the uprising, was that Britain worked hand-in-hand with the Zionist paramilitaries at the time to crush the Palestinian revolt. And they were able to really, really successfully because of the British, you know, was worried about having wars on other fronts and everything. So the British went in and really thoroughly crushed the Palestinians. So this is why in 1948 in one, is one of the reasons why the Palestinians were not able to resist on a, a more stringent level than they than they could have because basically they had been crushed in the 36 to 39 period. So then after, in 48, after Israel takes control 
of you know 78 percent of Palestine. Again, Palestinians are either living in exile or they're living under Israeli rule inside the Israeli state. And you have to remember, during this time, Palestinian, so-called Palestinian citizens of Israel, up until 1966, from 49 to 66, lived under martial law inside the Israeli state, where they could move, where they could work, what jobs they could take, political parties were banned, all of this sort of stuff. So they were living under this. It was the young Palestinians who were in exile or studying in exile in, in Egypt or Jordan or places who were starting then to take a more radical position, the young Palestinian middle class people like Yasser Arafat. And so that's when you see this Fatah and groups like that start to emerge. And of course, through the, the 70s, you have the armed struggle that, has, that comes to the forefront of the Palestinian struggle at this period. You said before that this war reshaped the Middle East. What about the relationship between the three countries who certainly lost in that war, Jordan, Syria and Egypt? What was the ongoing consequences of that? We know um, later on in the 70s, you have the, I think it's the Yom Kippur War, I think it's called. The Yom Kippur War that happened in the early 70s, again with uh, Egypt, plus other ones. Plus there's still tensions going on, but eventually both Egypt and Jordan sign a, a peace pact, I suppose you can call it, with the Israeli state and establish general normalised relations with them. Up until those periods, up until in the 70s, you know, most Arab states hadn't established, refused to acknowledge Israel as a state. They refused to engage with it on any... I mean, there was backdoor dealings, but, you know, on a public level, it was seen as not the right, you know, there was a lot of opposition to it, particularly from the publics within those countries, within the Arab countries, to normalising relations with Israel. But in the 70s, you get this uh, mid to late 70s, this normalisation of relations with Israel from countries like Egypt and Jordan and even to a certain degree later on, Syria, what's interesting about the 67 period as well coming out of that is this realisation, so I think this is the other reason why you have the Palestinian factions that start to rise up at this page, is that up until that stage there had always been this hope that the Arab countries would somehow win Palestine back for the Palestinians and Palestinians could return. And it became very clear after 67 that the Arab countries were not going to win Palestine back. And, you know, and even before that, they weren't really that interested in it because they had control of Palestinian territory and the West Bank and things like that, for example, Jordan did. So, of course, that suited their agenda rather than the Palestinian agenda. So the Palestinians were said, well, okay, nobody's going to do it for us, so we're going to do it for ourselves. Now, whether you agree with the armed struggle or not, that's a different matter, but this is the, the politicking and the thinking behind the, the Palestinians now taking on the struggle as very much something that they had to do for themselves rather than reliant on the Arab countries. And, of course, there was the various different forms of resistance and armed struggle that have taken place, particularly through the 60s, the late 60s and 70s, you know, everything from raids into uh, the West Bank to the hijacking of planes and various things like that that have happened. Now, you know, people can obviously debate and challenge whether they think these tactics were the right ones, were they right, were they wrong, or whatever the case was. Those things are obviously always open for historical debate and discussion and various things like that. But these 
at the time it's also that a colonial people have the right to resist colonial occupation and colonial oppression. These things informed a lot of the Palestinian struggles one way or another. We're in 2017 now. Where is the struggle? This is the problem. I mean, you know, we saw uh, back um, in the... um, sort of the intifada, we had the first intifada in 1987. Again, I mean, this is a continuation. We can't really look at things in isolation. You know, the uh, the first intifada, or the Stones intifada, as it was known, which happened in 87, was something that wasn't in Yasser Arafat's control. If you read Zionist histories of the intifada or accounts of it, they always blame Yasser Arafat. The reality is was it wasn't under... Arafat's control. It was a spontaneous uprising that happened that took the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem by surprise, you know, and basically for the first several months, that uprising, which was a civil uprising, was not under control of the PLO or Fatah. It was uh, had a very diverse leadership that was uh, various different factions in it, and Arafat and co. had to play catch-up to try and bring that into control and contain it because it was so widespread and such a popular uprising that, you know, it actually took, I think, the Israeli state by surprise. It took Palestinians in some ways by surprise itself, just ordinary Palestinians, you know, and there was a whole range of different resistance during that time. There was obviously, you know, the most obvious one was the uh, the stone throwing that happened, but there was also things like in villages where they refused to pay Israeli taxes, Bases like Bet, um, oh, I've gone blank on the name of the village, which is right next to Jer- Jerusalem, who basically bought their own cows so they could make milk and not have to rely on Israeli products. And there was a widespread boycott. There were strikes happening, uh, you know, general strikes that closed down businesses, which caused massive damage to the Israeli economy. And so you have this intifada that's happening in the late 80s coming into the early 90s. And so at the time, the PLO and the Yarafat then start secret negotiations with both Israel and the US to try and use what was happening in the intifada to leverage some power for the Palestinian leadership at the time. And, you know, this is a very controversial thing because when you have the peace process that begins in the 90s that originally was quite secret and then becomes public, originally, you know, this is the beginning of the two-state solution where people, there is a belief by many Palestinians and even Israelis uh, and other people in the world that suddenly that peace is possibly achievable through a two-state solution. But the reality is if you look at the deal that was done by with the Israelis, it was never going to bring about a two-state solution. It was never going to happen at all. It was a really bad deal for the Palestinians. And we've seen that over the last 20, 25 years, just how bad that deal was, that it's become the occupation uh, in the occupied territories has become deeper. The oppression of Palestinians has become worse. The loss of land has become more extensive, just the human rights abuses have become even worse. We've seen massacres like we saw in 2014 in Gaza where 2,200 Palestinians are killed in 50 days. And there is, unfortunately, at the moment, a deficit of leadership within the Palestinian movement because at the moment you have in place 
you know, in 2006, we had the elections, uh, which for the very first time, Hamas, as a faction, participated in, hadn't participated in um, elections before. And it, I think it was called the Change and Reform was a platform it participated in, and it won, which was a huge shock to not only the Palestinian Fatah groupings, but also the Israelis and the US. And as we know, in 2007, there was then a division in the Palestinian movement where Hamas had control now of Gaza. Abbas, Mohammed Abbas, becomes the leader of the Palestinian groupings in the West Bank. And now, you know, he was originally elected as the um, prime minister, but... That ran out after five years. That ran out like in something like 2012. So for the last five or more years, Abbas has been only uh, leading the PA with the support of the US and that. So this has meant that, you know, there is a real lack of popular leadership at the moment, I, I would argue, within the Palestinian sector. This is why at times you have some of the youth movements popping up every now and again and trying to organise. There's been various, every now and again you'll see sparks of resistance that will pop up. But it's very hard because at the moment the way that the PA works, because it's a, it's a body under occupation, and this is what we have to understand, the PA is not an independent state. Palestine is not an independent state. It is still a territory under occupation. The Palestinian Authority was only supposed to be a temporary authority that would help facilitate the two-state solution. And, you know, and we saw within the first year of after the 2006 elections, something like 70 or 80 Palestinian legislators arrested by the Israeli state, which tells you how not independent or how, how less a state that Palestine really is, that it's, it's not a state in any real sense that we would understand the state to be. Uh, and so it's still not an even playing field. There's still a dynamic of an occupier and an occupied. Just finally, Kim, the dearth of support for the Palestinians worldwide, there is support from civil societies, but mm. I can't think of one country that supports Palestine. Again, the diplomatic stage uh, is difficult. There has been, I mean, what we've seen in Australia, as we've seen internationally, there has been a growing support for the Palestinian people and Palestinian struggle worldwide on a civil level. Of course, on a diplomatic, international, political scale, not so much. That's the case. But so, And that's why it's important for us as social justice activists, civil rights activists, human rights activists, Palestine activists, to actually be a actively working to put pressure on our governments to support campaigns like the Palestinian BDS campaign, which have made a huge difference over the last 10 years or so. So it's really, really important that we are part of that. And, you know, we have to recognise that with most states, uh, capitalist states, whether it be Australia, the US or whatever, and these are imperial states, of course they're not going to side with the oppressed people. That has never been the case. If you look at history, the oppressed have always had to fight for themselves and have always had to struggle and it's only through solidarity that we've seen change. And we take the South African example, for example, apartheid. The, obviously there was a struggle of the South African people on the ground, like South African people on the ground, which led the struggle and made such a huge difference and they were the key to the struggle. But they also had growing support over the years 
for their struggle. And, you know, there were boycott actions happening around the world. There were demands being put on governments in the US and Australia and elsewhere not to, you know, engage with apartheid South Africa. And we're doing the same here now. I mean, obviously, the struggle inside Palestine uh, and inside Israel by Palestinians is the key point. That has to be what will win the struggle. It's the struggle led by the Palestinian people themselves inside both the occupied territories and inside the Israeli state. But we have a role as international people of conscience to also support the Palestinians by in our own countries by supporting, raising awareness about the Palestinian situation, the Palestinian struggle, supporting the BDS campaign, putting pressure on our own governments to cut ties with Israel or to, uh, you know, not support the various things. Now, it sounds daunting because we know, for example, in Australia that various Australian governments have given uncritical support to the Israeli state. But that doesn't mean we should be deterred by that because if you just look at the history of, for example, the BDS movement, it's really, really important. In BDS started in 2005-2006 as a movement and this was a time when things had become very normalised because of the so-called peace negotiations and the you know the peace movement backed by the um, the US, where very rarely you would actually hear words like occupation being used. You wouldn't hear there wasn't a discussion of the conflict as a colonial conflict. And one of the very very first victories of the the Palestinian BDS campaign was to reshift that narrative. That was really, really important. The BDS campaign has done really well to reshift the narrative to us now talking about Palestine-Israel in the terms that it should be talked about as a settler colonial conflict, colonial conflict, there's an occupier and an occupied, there's an oppressor and an oppressed. These things are important because it changes the perspective of the way people see the conflict and understand the conflict. I mean, I was just reading the other day, there was a, um, it was published in one of the uh, Israeli settler media about a study that's just been done in the US around US Jewish support for Palestine, uh, particularly among young people. There was worry that there's now such a low support for Israel amongst many young Jewish people on campus in the US. One of the things that they talked about were, well, what the PR messaging isn't right. We have to talk about this and we have to talk about that. The reality is that it doesn't matter what PR messaging Israel uses to try and whitewash their human rights abuses and war crimes and things like that. The fact is, is there is an occupier and there is an occupied. There is an oppressor and an oppressed. There is an occupation going on. There are war crimes coming. And no matter what PR you use, will not whitewash out these facts. And because we have such access to technology today, we are able to see what's going on and hear what's going on much quicker than we used to in, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And it's made a huge difference for the Palestinian struggle and support for the Palestinian struggle. And thanks to Kim Bullimore, a long-time supporter of Palestinian struggle. That's all for me. I'm going just very soon. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. We'll be hearing Radio Atticus at 6 o'clock. Bye for now.